Hey everyone, uh, I'm Shataj and welcome to another episode of Tractable. Today I have Marco with me, who's the VP of Engineering at Robust Intelligence. Robust Intelligence is a platform for real-time AI security, including products to help with validation of AI models and data. We have a lot to talk about, so I'm, I'm really excited to have you here, Marco. Uh, same here, very excited and thank you for inviting me. Of course, yeah. So maybe just to dive right in, tell me a little bit about your journey uh, before Robust Intelligence and, and kind of your career path leading up to where you are today. Uh, I think we'll take the whole hour to this. <laughs> I've, been, I've been in the industry for a while. So I started, you know, I did my PhD in Zurich where we work on uh, autonomous vehicles and flying autonomous vehicles. And, uh, and we did a startup there. So my journey in startup land started long time ago. And then I moved to the U.S. and started, you know, followed all the technology trends in the Silicon Valley, starting from virtualization, solid state drives, Kubernetes, security, encryption. So I touched a little bit everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm a old wolf. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm, sh I'm yeah. sure you've seen a lot of these trends kind of repeat in, in different words, so to speak. So one of the things I'm, I'm curious about is what, what sort of technical challenges over that time have you enjoyed the most and where have you felt like it's, it's the most engaging work for you? So, um, I thought about this question a long time when, when you sent me, sent me yesterday, the, the, the question, and I must admit that, uh, every, every, I touch many different technologies and, and technology trends and yes. each of them has interesting challenges. Everything is always nice to work on. It's always, you know, uh, rewarding and. I wouldn't say there is one specific technology that I, I can highlight as something that I enjoy the most. What I enjoy the most is the memories of solving those problems at teamwork. Mm. Right? Those, those build uh, lifelong friendships and, um, and uh, that's, I think it's, it's more valuable than anything else. Uh, you know, I can remember all the problems we had, uh, you know, with other startups and, and we, we, as a team, we got together and solved it. And if you ask me the detail about the technology problem we solved, I vaguely remember, but I only right. remember who was there, you know, how, how long we work and how excited we were when we found a solution. So, so those are the memories that, that really still very vivid today. And I think you mentioned, you know, working on things like virtualization and working on different storage technologies. Are there kind of patterns that you're seeing other than the fact that, you know, you're working with all these great people that keep popping up every time you face technical challenge? Like, is there, is there something where you're like, oh, it's this again. And, and now we're, I know we're going to have to spend the next six months figuring this out. Cause I, I've seen the story play out before. Um, so in, in general, every boom in technology, you know, has been brewing for a long time. Right. So, right. And then there is some, some, you know, something kicks it in and, and makes it, makes it go viral. Like, you know, virtualization, IBM had it for a long time and then VMware came along and then spread everywhere, Kubernetes, you know, same, same there, solid state drives also was the um, technology was there for a long time. So there is something who sparks that, that momentum and picks up, uh, LLM is the same situation, right? LLMs right. were, you know, around for, for a while before OpenAI came and made them very popular. So being, everybody's super excited, everybody jumps in, but then there is some, some reality, right? But some is a little bit hype and, and so, so the challenge is always like filtering out to bypass and, you know, a low pass filter on that, uh, high volatility and really yeah. zone in on the real value that this new technology brings to the table. Yeah. And, and I'm curious for your perspective on specifically how that relates to AI today. So obviously 
AI has been around for a very long time. LLMs have been around for a very long time, but we're kind of seeing the uptick of the curve really in the past year, year and a half, specifically as it comes to consumers, right? Like enterprises have been excited about ML for probably decades. And, and so g- give me a sense of, do you think this shift to consumer excitement is something technically novel or, or do you think it's just that the, the technology has been slowly building up and it's gone to a threshold where, you know, it's warranted and it's not just going to you know, die down in six months and people are going to realize, well, it's, we're just going to continue in, in some linear direction for the next uh, two or three years. I don't know. I think everybody agrees that this technology is here to stay. So there's no doubt about it. Uh, one thing that this technology in particular sparked is that, that everybody's super excited because it, it's so well demoable, right? Right. If you use Dolly, if you open AI or, or open or, uh, chat GPT, you, you get wowed immediately, right? So you, yeah. you, you say, like, holy wow, that, that, that's impressive, right? So yeah. I don't remember any other technology where you said, wow, right? Like, okay, I can, I mean, I'm impressed. I'm really amazed, right? The problem, though, is that these technologies are fantastic to demo. And, you know, if we make some mistake, we laugh about it, right? Yeah. But if you want to put that in business critical applications, you know, you're not going to laugh if you make a mistake, right? You might just <laughs> <be embarrassed>, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so that's why, and, and that's what we try to solve as a company. Yeah. The particular problem. And I think there will be, you know, the truth where these LLMs and, and new ML models will help industries and businesses, right? Yeah. In, in the in the consumer world, you know, that will, you know, now we have ChatGPT and slowly pick up more and more. But in the business world, we'll be used AI for a long time, right? Google was using AI for, for a very long time without us yeah. knowing, right? But, yeah. Um, so, so the technology is there, is mature enough, right? But LLM in particular come with such a wow factor, but also yeah. easy way that they can, you know, they've hallucinations, they can be toxic, right? Yeah. That can make mistakes. And I think it will take a little while because before they really enter into mainstream businesses yeah. and companies like us are trying to help that transition yeah. will take a little bit of time. Yeah. And, and maybe let's, Let's talk a little bit about robust intelligence as a product offering. So one of the things you said is LLMs and in, in generally new AI products are very demoable, but it's interesting because on the technical side, it feels like they're much less observable, right? So, so for the end consumer, it's like, great, you get a, a fancy generation output, but on the technical side, you have very little understanding of why it's producing the output it is and then how to kind of think about the risk factors involved in that. And obviously that's, that's the sort of thing that, that your platform is trying to solve today. So tell me a little bit about the product and then we'll, we'll kind of dive into the architecture and how the platform is built. So yeah, the, the, the platform essentially is a, is a risk management platform for AI models. So we try to identify AI security problem in the models and in the data set and, and elevate them and show them to the, to the user and then to help them protect against vulnerabilities. And especially because the obser- observability is a bit complicated, right? So you don't yeah. know what the LLM is doing. So you want to protect on, on the input and outputs of that models to make sure that follows, you know, laws and, you know, that is uh, not uh, hallucinating and, and protecting against all those errors is what we're trying to do. Yeah. And, and so diving into the architecture, tell me how robust intelligence is built and, you know, to the extent you can give us a sense of 
what are some of the interesting parts of the the architecture today? Yes. Um, so so when I joined, so the company is four year old, right? And when I right. joined, the team worked a lot and with a lot of know how in how to test or red teaming those models and and identify those risk and vulnerabilities, right? And so they build a really uh, fantastic package to identify those issues. Um, and I call it that, that that was the model and the engine. And what the, what the product is we're trying to build is the car around that engine, mm -hmm. the core know-how. Um, so what, so the product is, uh, you know, has this engine that does this, uh, identify those vulnerabilities and protect against those vulnerabilities. And then the platform is the car around who then mm -hmm. sell to the customer. The platform is, is a Kubernetes platform. Uh, so it's a pretty standard, um, um, nowadays is the standard yeah. of how you develop SaaS application, right? 10 years ago was totally different, right? Right. Um, and who knows in 10 years what, what the new platform will be, but currently we're using pretty quite a standardized, uh, de development and SaaS architecture to, mm -hmm. to build the platform. So as a Kubernetes platform, multiple microservices, the core functionality that we call it stress testing is running a dedicated node that we spin up using spot instances to reduce cost. Um, and those spot instances run for like a half an hour to an hour, depending mm. on the, on the complexity of the computation. And then they shut down and that core engine is, is mostly Python. Machine learning is a Python world. Um, mm -hmm. so that's mostly Python, but the rest of the system is, is Golang, which is again, is a kind of a standard way to develop SaaS application nowadays. Yeah, that's, it's interesting because I think a lot of the parts you just mentioned, um, you know, in, in some sense could be used in any SaaS application, right? So, so this Kubernetes cluster, the spot instances, yeah. even the choice of framework and language. Are there things that you think are, um, you know, specific to robust intelligence or, or maybe phrase another way, you know, you, you really want most things to be boring so that they're predictable and so that it's you can kind of, yeah. you scale them well. But are, are there things where you're like, oh, we've put a lot of effort into this that I think is very different than other companies, or at least we've had to design our own custom solution because what we would get out of the box just, just wouldn't work for us. Um, so, so the interplay between, between you call it the control plane and the data plane, uh, mm -hmm. that's a, also common architecture in, in, yeah. in past project, but the, what's unique about us, the agent, the data plane, the, where the computation is done is, you know, that's the core of our companies, right? That's, that's the business logic of our company, right? Yeah. So, so that's where we put a lot of effort, making sure that that's reliable, that's, uh, that's performing well, and that we can deploy it at the customer so that the customer can, you know, we don't have access to data, keeping the data secure and the computational costs are on the, on the customer side as well. So, so that's a little bit unique uh, in that, yeah. uh, uh, in that sense of the architecture, you know, usually the control plane, data plane, the data plane is, is minimal. It's just a shim, just a small layer. And then yeah. heavy computation is done in the control plane. Yeah. For us, that's a little bit reverse. Uh, our mm. heavy computation is done on the data plane uh, that we deploy mm. at the customer side. And yeah. then control plane is a little bit more uh, uh, lightweight as visualization, yeah. you know, user management, security, uh, yeah. and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I always wonder when the data plane or the agent deployed within the customers VPC, when that has a lot of business logic, does that get hard to debug or, or update or, or really keep, you know, in a way, functioning in a way that you wanted to function? And then the, the second question I have is like, yeah. uh, if something goes wrong in the customer's environment, let's say they cut off a security group or they you know, run out of some quota on their end, they can't deploy it anymore. 
Uh, does that ever cause headaches for your team? So, so maybe those are related in some sense. Yeah, you went straight to the through the painting, <laughs> like on that. Uh, yeah, so that's so the development gets a little bit harder because you know you want to develop locally on a machine. Now, now is a distributed setting in your machine. You yeah. want to make sure that uh, that it works on your machine so that you know the development is is accelerated or fast. Uh, and then, but then once you once you once you need to um, you you merge or change, you want to test all potential combinations and yeah. having a split. You know you have multiple different combinations. You have different clouds that you want to support. You have different versioning problem that you need to address. So, so that's, you know, that's very complicated very quickly. Uh, yeah. So that's definitely a headache. Uh, customer support. Yes. That's the usual problem. I think uh, it's not unique to us for everybody who deploys in a VPC. They have the same problem that they need to access the logs. They need to see the metrics. They need to, to see what happens on the customer side, but the customer doesn't want to let you go in. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's not a unique problem, the observability and debugging uh, in that sense. And, you know, thank goodness, you know, there are plenty of tools to allow us to simplify that. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, definitely it's on our radar as a problem. And, and so in, in architecturally, you have the split of control plane and data plane. I don't know if that's exactly the axis, but, but how does the architecture of the, the actual stack dictate how teams are organized internally? Is that does it happen to align pretty closely to that or, or have you found kind of a more horizontal way to align teams with just capabilities of the platform? So in small, so definitely, you know, that confluence law, right? Where your team right. structure defines your software structures. Um, so that's 100% true. Uh, in our teams, you are pretty small and co-located. So, so those barriers are a bit less, uh, less strong. Uh, so mm. we can, you know, we don't, the structure is aligned, not to totally with the current uh, current uh, control plane and data plane split. Uh, but as we grow, that will be become more and more uh, uh, an issue, and and uh, and we'll have to you know structure us based on that split to make sure yeah. that we can develop uh, in isolation and be fast, so that each team is individually fast and and is not yeah. blocked these barriers. Yeah, but yes. Uh, it's definitely definitely on our radar, but as the team is small and is co-located, uh, you know those barriers are a bit not as strong as I said, and we can change the structure of the architecture without having to to modify the structure of the engineering teams um, yeah. too much. But yeah. at, as we grow, will become more and more important. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then again, kind of continuing on this idea of the data plane being in the customer's environment. Uh, I, one thing that I've seen and kind of as a pattern is customers are more hesitant to see the value when they're running the compute, right? So even though all your core business logic, yeah, all the stuff that you all are doing uh, is, is ultimately the value of the product, they're running some of the compute and they're also paying their cloud provider. Is, is that a problem you see where it's a little um, harder to communicate, or, you know, why you're paying robust intelligence what you are? So the cost of the compute is not usually, you know, a customer spend way more for other stuff than sure. our compute, right? So, so we are a drop in their bucket. Okay. okay. It's not, a, it's not a pain point. Uh, what I appreciate is the fact that, you know, they are in control of all the data governments, all the mm. governments, right? For us, we, we don't need to go and access those, right? So it makes it way easier for yeah. them to deploy our system. Um, yeah. On the computational side, we offer the, you know, if that's a problem, we can run it for them, right? Or sure. It's not. You know, we can bypass that 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 yeah. problem. But uh, but the biggest advantage is that 
they are in control of it. They can deploy. They they know exactly what's going on. And nowadays, you know, with SOC two and all these security concerns, companies very more more uh, concerned about security than than right. even ten years ago, right? Right. So, so uh, that makes a simple way for deployment for us. And um, I'm curious, is there any difference in terms of what architecture companies go with depending on their maturity? Is it like, you know, the, the larger of a company you are, the more you care about data governance. And so you really want it all tightly controlled within your stack. And then early companies, you know, are just like, okay, fine. If it's a SaaS offering, it's a SaaS offering. And we can check the boxes of security some other way. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that, I, that's I, kind of the. I answer. think uh, I think it's not more the size, but it's the 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 vertical or where the company is, right? So in regulated oh, industry, uh, okay. you know, finance, uh, insurance, and healthcare, they are really yeah. regulated. So yeah. even even a smaller company has to follow those regulations. So so uh, so I would say that is even more important than um, than the size of the company. Yeah. And so thinking about the architecture, what are the biggest gaps today? Or, you know, what is the team working on improving? And then also specifically, where are you spending most of your time in terms of uh, guiding the team or providing support? So, yeah, on a startup, the biggest gap is always the one who helps you close the customer, right? So that's always <laughs> the biggest gap. So you're trying always try to close it, right? And find yeah. the right solution. So it's always a balance between tech depth and, and gap. I can pinpoint exactly what the pain point of all of the teams are because we're, you know, based on the customer and based on uh, where we are, we, we have different gaps and then we work right. very fast to, right. to close those gap as they come in. Uh, obviously, you know, there were some architectural choices that were done like two, three years ago that might have been done differently if we start from scratch right now, right? Yeah, yeah. But those are different, you know, that's a standard startup problem, right? Yeah, so if yeah. you knew all the problems at the beginning, you would have done <laughs> it differently uh, now. Yeah. But what I spend most of my time is, uh, um, I'm a strong believer that a great product comes from great engineers, right? Mm. So the only thing that I can do is to make sure that the engineers have a fantastic, are supported and have a fantastic environment to develop. Uh, yeah. So, and that means, you know, uh, supporting them with the best tool, making sure that the CICD pipeline is is effective, making sure that the collaboration works, that people are doing, you know, that is energizing and de-energizing work, right? So that yeah. we balance that, so 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 that the team are effective and efficient. Yeah. Uh, so that's what my my I'm spending most of my time. Um, yeah. Are there specific like metrics that you look at to try to gauge? You know, are people is your engineering engaged? Are they being efficient? You know. For example, I've heard some folks really looking at review time on pull requests, right? So that's maybe one metric of are people getting back to each other quickly or are they spending most of their time blocked and, and waiting on others? Are, are there metrics like that that you, you actively look at or do those just get gamed over time? So you're like, you know, it, it's more of a gut feeling. Um, so so what I'm, so there was a famous article floating around the, the webs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, about how to measure imp measure performance. I think McKinsey right. also tried to do something. They got a really um, bad press about that. <laughs> but I I totally believe that the most important thing that people do, especially a startup, is impact. So how they impact, how they do they move the needle, right? Could be one yeah, single yeah. one of code, right? So how you uh, and the impact is pretty. You know, there is not a metric that you measure, but you cannot know, right? Somebody is right, moving right. the needle in the right direction of the company, knows the you know, important problems, knows the priority, knows how to, what is important to the company at that particular point in time. 
So, yeah. so that is the thing. And, it's, you know, it's pretty easy to spot who is, who is moving the needle and who is, who is more of a supporting, a supporting role. Um, all the other metrics that you mentioned is like debugging is, is, is looking you look at logs to see what the problems are, right? But he's not yeah, looking yeah. at the logs to see how people, how your software is working, right? Commits, uh, PR reviews, uh, all the stuff is, 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 you know, if something, if somebody is not doing a, a lot of impact in the company, you can go and say, oh, or you can kind of debug and find problems and, and root cause the problem. The goal is always to make everybody as, as productive as can be. I think everybody has real potential. Right? When we hire people, we believe we hire because we believe they are great potential, right? So uh, we need to make sure that they are supported and, and, and be as, a, as productive uh, as they can, right? People go through phases too, right? So, so there's yeah, one, yeah. one somebody is really, is really productive and, you know, something happens. Uh, the kids are up at night the whole night and life is not a straight line. So, so we have to adapt for that as well. One thing on the metric side that you mentioned, I, I just started, uh, um, I tried this uh, in the recent quarter, is to mm -hmm. measure engineering effectiveness or engineering, how can I say, maturity based, there are some levels and there is a organization, Engineering X, that kind of published this, uh, this survey on a set of metrics that you can measure your engineering org against. And um, I'm just trying to do that to get a level of sense of what, where we are on a maturity level of engineering org. So that doesn't measure people's performances or measure you as an org. Um, what can you do to be even more mature, more, 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 uh, more faster and support engineering org to be more effective. Um, so I just started doing that. Yeah. I'm trying to collect the results right now. So, so it will be a, a, a surprise when, when the numbers comes in, but, uh, but I think it's, or looking at it, I, I got a good feeling that there is a good balance of, of uh, really useful metrics that can can help uh, guide the engineering org. And and one of the things you said was you try to kind of look at balancing between what the the product needs to fill customer needs, as well as you know the, the roadmap you have and and the things you plan for the year or quarter, let's say, right? So, how do you think about how that affects engineering engagement? Because you know what one of the narratives is lots of people want to work on exciting new things and your roadmap that's really going to contribute that new things to the product but but the reality of startup life as you're saying is there's things customers want and you need to fill those gaps and sometimes those are not going to be the most exciting uh, how are you going to strike that balance and do you think that has an impact on the engagement of the engineers who are working on just kind of enterprise readiness things again and again or even just small features that you know, maybe don't seem that exciting at the end of the day to, to everyone who's using the product. I think the people who join a startup are people who are, are looking for that excitement, that adrenaline rush of helping customers. So I think that that's already kind of self-selecting a little bit. Mm. People who want to work with customers, help them out, right? You have to find a balance also between, you know, you cannot just work for the customer or you become a professional services company, right? So right. you have to strike the balance between making the customer happy and a long-term vision in the company and making sure that all the solutions that you build for the particular customer uh, have uh, impact on the long-term plan, right? Otherwise, you shouldn't do that, right? You should yeah. say, we're not going to do that, right? But you have to find a balance. Um, and then the, the other thing is the balance is as you move very fast, right? Because as a startup, you know, the, 
the only advantage a startup have against big companies is that we're moving way faster than they can. Yeah. For all the reasons we know, we can move way faster than them. That's why startup are, um, have a, you know, competitive chance. advantage. Yeah. 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 So, so, but by moving faster, creating, you know, a lot of dust behind you, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that dust has to settle somehow. And sometimes you have to go and clean it up. Right. So, so that's, that's a, always a balance when you decide what you have to do next, you have to choose, you know, customer, high customer critical issues, uh, long-term vision, like big roadblocks or big things that you're working on and then cleaning up a little bit the, the dust that, the, that you left behind, uh, over yeah. the So you have to find a balance. Um, and sometimes, you know, um, at one of the startups about before we, we build so much dust behind that we had to start a parallel prop, um, team that was basically writing in the V2 while we are still shipping V1, but then they knew that in six months, V2 had to replace V1. So, yeah. so we had to do that because you still have to sell the product, right? Yeah. yeah. That's only in the right situation where we have to do yeah. this. Sometimes you can do it incrementally and, and, yeah. and change the engine while the airplane is flying. Yeah. One of the unique positions that I think you all are in is having started a few years ago, uh, I'm, I'm sure the company has kind of seen a shift in the industry because I imagine the AI security landscape, or even just generally working with customers who care a lot about AI has changed a lot since the introduction of LLMs. What, what's kind of your perspective on that? How, how have companies or even just industry practices changed over the last couple of years? So, so, um, the, the good news for, for robust intelligence, like when the company was started four years ago, you know, the founder had the fantastic vision, the founders had a fantastic vision that, that this was a problem was coming on right. more and more, more important. Right. So, and you know, yesterday's the white house announcement was just, you know, preaching to the choir for us. Yeah. But, but there's been a shift quite dramatic in the past years on a company leveraging AI. So before that. A lot of companies were using AI, you know, and they had data science team, they were building their own models, right? And, and they put it in production and, and, you know, we've seen a lot of successes uh, and, and company doing really well by following that path. Uh, with the, with this boom of LLMs, uh, what changed is that now this data science team, um, and also because of the economy situation, right? Some companies are shifting from building their own model to, to leverage foundational mm. models, right? So the idea is that why should I build my own when I can just build my application on yeah. top of, of this foundational model that are in, incredibly capable of doing things. Yeah. Right? So we have seen that shift. Um, personally, I believe that at some point people will move back because, hmm. you know, foundational model, you know, is like a hammer and everything is a nail. Uh, so, but you know, there will be probably smaller model and better model to handle some of the particular problems that company, yeah. but we have seen the transition, uh, luckily for us, uh, you know, for us, we're testing models. If the model is built by a company or is that foundational model, right? For us, it doesn't change much. Right. So, yeah. so, so the vision was solid and, and robust enough to serve us, not survive, but you know, be, be, be useful for, for both situations. So yeah. we're in a good spot, uh, in, in that sense, but we have seen that transition quite yeah. dramatically. In, in in the people we're talking to. And and I imagine the pain point is actually much worse because if you're not building the model, you pragmatically have less experience understanding the model and understanding its limitations and how it's going to act in certain situations. Probably what I'm guessing is 
that the level of experience with the model has decreased dramatically as you've kind of outsourced a lot of the the, the early kind of training of it. And uh, maybe now all you're doing either is, is nothing and just prompt engineering or or maybe fine tuning, but but you don't have the the depth of experience that maybe a company did two years ago. Is that is that right? That that's totally right. Yeah. So that's building a model is not a trivial, you know, it's not trivial. Right? So you have to have the data, you have to right. train it and verify and making sure that the model is doing the right things. So it takes a lot of effort, right? So and the people building those kind of understand the model and have confidence that the model is doing what what's supposed to do. When you're leveraging somebody else's model, you know, you can test it a little bit, but you have to have the trust that, that yeah. the model is is doing the right thing all the time. Yeah. That's where we try to solve that, right? We come in and build tools that allow to build that confidence, uh, allow to build that trust in the external models so that yeah. if it's a business critical application, you are not, uh, you know, you're, you're not making mistakes. And, and do you think that changes the overall security threat level? Because one story I can imagine is everyone's using these models, but these models have been through a bunch of, you know, exercises where they've been stress tested and, and there's a lot of hard work being put into locking them down. On the other hand, they're much more powerful, right, than, than maybe a model someone would have trained two years ago. And so a little bit harder to kind of scope what the security risks are. So, you know, on balance, do you think we're in a worse place or a better place given, given how the ecosystem has shifted? I think it's worse, right? Because the yeah. are so capable of, right? So it's sim simply to try to, it's easier to kind of find holes and bypass them. That's why mm -hmm. I think what we're doing is extremely important to lock right. down those LLMs to make sure that they're all doing what they're supposed to do. And that by design, those LLMs can do a lot of things. And you yeah. know, by design, you can try to abuse them, right? Because they can't do more than what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, if you build a model that give you, you know, predicts, uh, you know, let's say the house prices or predicts if somebody's a good hire or not, yeah. right? An attacker could try to make them do the wrong answer, right? But they cannot yeah. try to be toxic or extract PII data. You can't do that stuff, right? Yeah. But with LLM, you know, the, you know, you can write a, an attacker could force your LLM to write code that executes and, and does something into your network, right? So, yeah. So, so the surface attack is way, way, way bigger uh, in the yeah. ecosystem. Do you think then that most people still underestimate the, the security risks uh, of LLMs? And maybe as a corollary, do people underestimate the, the power and creativity of the LLMs? Or wh where do you think we are on that spectrum? I think is, there is a binomial distribution. There are people okay. who are really, really understanding the problems and really know the potential and that we have impacted this, right? Uh, that's why there are, you know, there are people very concerned with this and, and, and trying to, you know, deploy solutions like ours or, you know, the White House, you know, with the executive order, right? And then there is a people who think, oh, it's just a new toy, you know, I can only, like yeah. yesterday I went to a presentation by, by, by somebody. Say, oh, this is modern. They're just they're just two language, right? It's just a glorified dictionary. I was like, <laughs> you are uh, reducing that too much, right? Because it just they can execute a code, right? In some setting, they can they can really be powerful. So if, if they're not handled correctly, so yeah. But I think people there are people who really understand it, and people who kind of they are not fully grasped. Yeah, they're like dismissing it. Yeah, yeah, dismissing. Yeah, that's the right word. Yeah. That's, um, 
So let's let's talk a little bit about how you all use LLMs internally. So obviously you're you're supporting the ecosystem in very important ways, but what's the internal use case for LLMs? How is that picked up uh, in the engineering org or, or maybe across the company? So obviously, you know, we are we are AI company. So so we if if we don't embrace LLM, <laughs> right? Uh, who else will, right? Uh, right. With a secure with the security eye on it, right? But right. we we use a uh, code assist generation quite quite heavily internally. Uh, goes back to the engineering discussion, before, right? So I think it's a tremendous value to the to the engineering team. Uh, you know, it it reduces the amount of you know when I spoke about energizing the energizing work, it reduces yeah. the amount of the energizing work, right? Like people writing tests, for example, it's always been you know as an engineering manager, it's always did you write the test for that? <laughs> <laughs> I do it very often, right? I see some things right. that did you write a test for that? Now with with uh, you know with with uh, generative assist, I don't I don't know how to name the company we're using, but uh, sure. they're really really helpful, right? You write a, you say, write me a test for that, and boom, it gives you the skeleton, and yeah. and you're ready to go. So so I think that's definitely fantastic use of that technology. And when he makes mistakes, because he makes mistakes, and sometimes right. funny mistakes, you can you know I can spot them quickly and fix them, right? Yeah. So, so I think it's a perfect use of that technology internally. Yeah. Um, and then we leverage LLM for a bunch of things internally as well. Um, yeah, um, helping us debug, helping us to 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 drive some of of our uh, protection and so on. So, so so yeah, we yeah. are you know LLM. We're we're spending a lot of money on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I always found interesting about the code output use cases. On one hand, it's beneficial that it's outputting code that you can observe, you can see what mistakes it's making, and you can fix them. On the other hand, let's say you had more trust in what it was doing. It doesn't need to output something that you can read, right? Like, let's say you could formally just verify that the test it wrote tested the, the functionality you want. And, you know, it's outputting some compiled code or, or some artifact that you can't inspect. Do you think we're eventually going to get there? Or do you yeah. think it's we're, we're always going to be outputting like human, you know, verifiable code and, and something that's, you know, in characters that we can understand? Um, no, we are going there, right? Where, where the LLM will spit out code and then nobody is checking it, right? Yeah. Thank goodness, you know, we have a lot of history about checking code, which is compiler <laughs> and stack right. analyzer. And so that kind of, and, and that can give you, you know, virus scanner that can give confidence that what the LLM will spit out is, is not dangerous, right? So I think, I think we're going to get there. Um, I think though that will be mostly for the the i would say the boundary code like all the mm -hmm. last mile connections like you know doing the integration with you know reading the logs from datadog or you know those last mile connection where yeah. you have apis you know how to write them you just it's just typing and LLM, yeah. i think can can do it very well and will do it yeah. very well the yeah. code components like what we are doing yeah there's a lot of creativity that goes into it yeah a lot of thinking and then can assist you, give maybe the, the initial step of the idea. But if you want to be original, you, you, you still, you still, you still need, you know, manpower to do that. Yeah. And uh, also I, I believe that I forgot to say that, but if everybody has it, nobody has it. So as a competitive advantage, right? If yeah. you're building a start, especially in a startup where we are building something state of the art new, if you, if you leverage LLM to build the core of your company, yeah. then you know, you're, you're a little bit shaking ground because everybody has it, right? Yeah, so, yeah. 
So, so it's not unique. So that's why yeah. I believe the core uh, will still be, and, and forever, I believe, will be not auto-generated, but will be manually created through creativity. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the use case I'm thinking of, exactly like you said, is at the boundary where if you want an LLM to change some copy on your marketing site, uh, one very local implementation is, you know, it outputs a pull request, someone has to go and merge it or look at the CSS it generated, but none of that really matters, right? You can just do whatever it wants and no one ever has to look at the coded output. And as long as the okay. the website looks good, that then then you're done. I totally agree. Yeah, those are, yeah. and also where the mistakes are not fatal, right? Where the mistakes are yeah. undoable, easily undoable, right? So I think for that stuff, LM will be a fantastic accelerator for what you're doing, right? As a startup, yeah. you know, the core, you know, is still, is still far away from, from LLM um, being, being there. And, you know, everybody says AGI and, and if AGI is there, everybody will have AGI. So what's a competitive advantage for a startup? Right. So that's why I still believe that to be successful, a startup has to do something that is really fundamental and state of the art and no LLM can do that. Okay, great. To wrap us up, what are you most excited about, um, let's say in the coming few years, whether it's at robust intelligence or maybe just as an industry on the AI side, what sort of technical advancement are you most looking forward to? Definitely, you know, I want to see where exactly we end up in the, into the AI, uh, you know, hype and where we see productivity. <laughs> And LLM having a humongous impact. Uh, I, I, I believe we are only seeing the tip of the iceberg right now. Okay. We've seen, I never seen a technology move so fast, right? Every day I go on Twitter and I see something, somebody, something new, a new paper or a new discovery or something that like, uh, it's mind blowing how fast we're moving. So that's excited me. I've been in startup for, for quite a, quite a few years now and. It's always a journey. That that's the thing that excites me the most, right? It's, a, it's an adventure. The goal is not to you know have a fantastic exit. Obviously, you know it's a lottery ticket. We hope we sure, have a fantastic yeah. exit, right? But it's the journey, right? Is the the memory you make, the friendship you make along the way. Uh, for all the start I've been, I made a ton of friendship. I had a ton of yeah. fun. It's always been a fond memory of all those adventures. You know, even if the company didn't didn't succeed, right? Um, but it's been always a fun uh, time and nothing yeah. is more rewarding than working with fantastic people in a small team or yeah. solving, solving something that is, uh, that is unique. Um, yeah. Well, maybe that's the one definite positive output is that with these LLMs and, and just generally AI technology, it does seem like there's going to be more startups, right? There's going to be more small teams who are able to build products and bring products to market. And so whether or not the, there's a hype cycle and all of these companies exit exactly in the way that they want. There will be more companies out there and, and trying to build better products and hopefully bringing them to consumers. Yeah, super exciting. The number of startups that has been built around these, uh, these new technologies is, is, is impressive. I've, I've never yeah. seen, maybe in the 2000, you know, when the internet really boomed, right? Um, we saw a little bit of over, you know, investment. Right. <laughs> uh, I believe we are in a similar situation where, you know, some funding goes to startup that the business model might be not really solid, but, but it's, you know, you have to try a hundred things to make one successful. Right. So I, I think exciting things that I had always 100% sure. Awesome. Well, on that note, thanks Marco for coming on the podcast today and really appreciate your time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Hope this was interesting and not too boring. Yeah. Thanks again for inviting me. Awesome. Thanks. Bye.